Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Tristan. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well, thanks, Hythe. Uh, it's been a long day, but we're headed into a good weekend of duck sports, so looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, you've been uh, writing up uh, some of the weekend uh, sports stuff uh, uh, for the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, let's talk about it. Uh, let's start with beach volleyball. Uh, uh, the ladies went to the Tall Trees uh, uh, competition. How'd that go? Well, you know, given I get, I, we talked about this a little bit uh, the last time we went over beach volleyball's first fall tournament at the Alki pairs up in Seattle. This is a program that is, uh, well, it, it, it's having a bit of a time. Uh, unfortunately for those who don't know, the ladies are suing the school because mm-hmm. they feel that they're not being properly supported. And from the evidence that at least in the press, it does seem like they're, they've got a pretty strong case. So we're rooting for them in the courtroom, but we'd prefer to root for them on the sand. So the Ducks went to Boise, where they faced uh, the Utah Utes and the Boise State Broncos. Uh, each school entered two teams in the gold division, their two strongest teams. They put three teams in the silver division and two teams in the bronze division. Pool play didn't go all that well for, for our Ducks. They went 0-4 in pool play in the gold. They picked up two wins in pool play in the silver and one play in bronze. So most of their pairs were seated pretty low on Sunday on day two of the competition did get a couple of wins on day two. So there was, there was something, uh, there was something good to take away from this final tournament of the, of the fall season. Uh, there was a quarterfinals win in the silver division and, uh, there was a semifinal win in bronze. So a couple of pairs had pretty strong showings on day two. And I read in your article, there was a, a, a kind of an interesting situation, uh, an, an Oregon player and a Utah player, uh, teamed up. This was an extremely unusual situation. I There was a lot to get through in this article, so I didn't have time to do a deep dive on the details of this. I did a quick Google search and couldn't find much of anything. But there was a pair, Oregon's Josie Griffiths, partnered with Utah's Siona Thompson, and they were a mixed team that filled out the bronze division, and their wins didn't get credited to any school. They were essentially mm. just, I suppose you could call them an individual entry in this tournament, even though obviously they were a pair. I don't know if that was arranged in advance with Utah or if that's something that happened at the tournament. I'd love to get more of the story behind that. Yeah, it seems like good good sports or, or maybe a topic for a good movie. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, it seems like uh, maybe a little better outcome than, than Alki pairs. Uh, you know, I like to see that. Um uh, all right. Uh, the uh, uh, next, let's talk about uh, men's tennis. Um, you uh, uh, you covered two different tournaments. Uh, the, they went to um, uh, the ITA Northwest Super Regionals, and then they got out of uh, Super Regionals. You know, they're going to be going to regionals later, um, but they, uh, uh, they, you know, they're starting up with the, the national championships. Uh, they went down to the SoCal uh, Intercollegiate Championships. So you've talked about both of them. Uh, how's it going? Well, Northwest Super Regionals went very well, in particular for one player, Quinn Van de Castile. Uh, Mr. Van de Castile managed to win every single individual match he had in the Super Regional. He won the Super Regional. So he is the lone entrant in the ITA National Tournament, which 
actually began on Wednesday. And I regret to report, I looked this up just before we started recording, he was eliminated in round one by a player from Texas in straight sets. But nice. just just getting uh, a player there, I think, was a real accomplishment, particularly when he had to defeat some highly ranked players from both Cal and Stanford in the Super Regionals. Uh, he was also part of a pair that made it to the semifinal match against a team from Washington uh, before they were eliminated in Super Regional play. And doubles seems to be the strengths of these Oregon teams, as I've just been doing a summary of both the men's and women's. So there were there was progress in the doubles. Uh, Vandica Steele definitely had the best the best success in the Super Regionals. Beyond that, there no one advanced very deep at, mm. into pool play. Well, uh, what about doubles, though? Uh, uh, it seemed like uh, Brazil and Lou Kamen, uh, uh did okay. They did okay. They made it to the semifinals. Unfortunately, it's it's a pretty brutal setup for the fall competition in tennis. you got to win a Super Regional if you want to get into the National. And uh, as a duo, they didn't quite make it that far. Uh, what about uh, down in SoCal the, the, uh, for the next article that you wrote? Um, uh, I think it looked like they had a little more success. They made it past the qualifying rounds, right? Yes, they had uh, singles and doubles players uh, made it past the qualifying rounds. So the, uh, the pair of, because uh, Quinn Van de Castile was preparing for the ITA Nationals, he did not participate in the mm-hmm. SoCal Invitational. The rest of the team went down to SoCal for their, their last, uh, uh, I beg your pardon, not the last tournament. They're going to be back in action uh, later this week. In fact, right. uh as you're hearing this podcast, they, they will be back in action November 3rd in Rolling Hills Estates, California, the Jack Kramer Invitational. Check it out. But last weekend, uh, Brazil and Lewinkeman, uh, they managed to uh, get out of the main draw, and they were beaten in the round of 16 from San Diego. But another pair of Burton and Robertson uh, managed to reach the quarterfinals. They took out a pair from USC, but then on Saturday, those darn bucking Broncos from Boise State got them. You know, Oregon versus Boise State. What are you mm. going to do? Uh, well, nice. Uh, when's the uh, ITA National Championship? Uh, ITA tournament actually began on Wednesday, and it is continuing through the end of this weekend. Okay. Uh, and Vander Castile was was eliminated. We'll find out the results, uh, you know, by the end of the weekend. Is you know, overall, like we haven't had a whole ter- lot to report from men's tennis uh, in, in recent years. This feels like uh, doing better uh, than than uh, than than they had been. I, I sort of feel like this is a program on the upswing. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how this goes in the future. All right, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about some golf. Uh, mm-hmm. The, 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 the women's golf uh, team uh, went down to the Stanford in, intercollegiate. Uh, you know, Stanford has been sort of like the budding rivalry for, for Oregon women's golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, how'd that go? Well, there are two ways to look at this. If you look at the raw numbers, Oregon goes down currently ranked number four. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stanford is currently ranked number one. You talk about the rivalry that has yeah. been budding between these two programs. And there are 19 teams and Oregon finishes 11th. So when you look at that on the on the cusp of it, you'd say that that's a pretty disappointing showing. There is a pretty big asterisk on this one, which is that... Uh, Maybe Oregon's best player, two-time uh, All-American 
Brianna Chacon and a senior in Minori Nagano were both not part of this trip. They were competing in LPGA tournaments that conflict oh, really? with this. Yes, yeah, so they're, they're already on the pro circuit at some level. Uh, again, these are real summary because there are a lot of duck sports and we want to give at least some coverage to everyone who competes for the University of Oregon. So I didn't really have a time to do a deep dive, but I'd be very curious to do a little research later and see how they're how they're doing on the LPGA portion of their performance. Uh, that is interesting. Um, <laughs> amateurism be damned. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, right. Um, I wonder how the NIL money compares. Yeah, exactly. Or the LIV money. Um, yeah. uh, what about the rest of the squad? Uh, rest of the squad, so you're down your two best competitors, but so they finish 11th out of 19 teams, and unfortunately, they did finish behind pretty much most of the other teams in the Pac-12. Uh, number 11, USC, actually took this tournament. Number one, Stanford comes in number two. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a little confusing, but not unexpected. Uh, you got Cal in there, UCLA and Arizona State. Those are all top 25 teams. Probably the real disappointment was that uh, down two of their top players, this team finished actually behind the Beavers, and yes. Oregon State is rated number 48. So again, on the, on the surface, this was kind of a disappointing showing, even if you have to put the asterisk next to it. But there, there are some positive takeaways. There were three rounds in this tournament, and the scores improved every every day of competition, particularly mm. on the third day. Uh, the scores were 296 total, 292 total, so shaved four strokes off from day one to day two. And from day two to day three, they actually shaved off eight strokes. So you at least wow, saw nice. some improvement. So they, fa they found some chemistry. Yeah, I wish I could show And uh, Brianna... Um, Jinzu Chen was their top performer in this tournament. She finished tied third overall at five under par. So you had a very strong individual effort, which when they get all their players back in the spring, this team could very well be very competitive again. I mean, this reminds me of like when, you know, Pac-12 team, you know, has a bunch of players sit out for the NFL draft and then they go play a Mountain West team in a bowl game that's like, you know, all these plucky dudes who, uh, you know, they ain't got no NFL talent, but, you know, and, and it's like, this isn't a fair competition. So, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to write that one off. Um, what about the men's golf side? They went down to Carmel. Yeah, they went down to Carmel at uh, Cal Poly and they had a very strong showing. Uh, Men's golf has also definitely been on the upswing, if you'll pardon the pun. Mm. Uh, they haven't reached the heights that the women's team did last year, but this was a, a very competitive tournament. They were neck and neck with UCLA on two days. They ended day one uh, two strokes ahead, but UCLA got them by three strokes on day two. So unfortunately, UCLA takes the tournament by a single stroke mm. but the that's frustrating obviously so but you finish ahead of all the other pac 12 teams you're you're frustrated that you you uh, you gave up the lead but i think you have to be pretty pretty pleased with a very strong showing uh you know we're going to be talking about cal later speaking of which cal i uh, i guess chubbs gave them their uh hockey stick putters on day two because they they had a very weak day one but they had the best 
round of the entire tournament, 11 under par, well better than any wow. other single individual round on day two. So, you know, shout out to the, out to the bears for, for coming back. And uh, Nate Stember uh, tied for first place for individually, right? Indeed, he did. Nate Stember yeah. tied for first place individually. There was a tie for uh, third place be, uh, behind uh, Mr. Stember and his UCLA counterpart. And then tied for uh, fifth place with another UCLA shooter was Gregory Solhaug of the Ducks. Uh, Stember finished eight under par, Solhaug finished six under par. So you saw it really was a very close competition, and we'll have to keep our eye on these two teams as they uh, as they enter competition in the spring. Uh, all right, cross-country. Uh, cross-country went up to uh, Washington State to uh, for the Pac-12 championships, uh, which were not actually at the University of Washington. I, I think they were at, like, the University of Puget Sound or something like that. Um uh, uh, I, I know that Oregon did not win. I think that was, uh, uh, um, uh, the Washington women and the Stanford men won, but I think mm -hmm. Oregon did pretty well on both sides. Pretty well on both sides. They finished behind both Stanford and Washington on the men's and, and women's side. On the men's side, they came in a very strong third. They were well ahead of Colorado who came in fourth place. Mm. And uh, Oregon placed uh, three runners, five through seven, behind the top runners from Washington and Stanford. So it's disappointing, especially, you know, because one of them was Washington. But yeah, yeah. It, if you're, you know, if you're in a field of, uh, of Pac-12 teams and you place third and you're, you know, you put some distance between yourself and Colorado, you, that's nothing to hang your head about. Uh, women had a, uh, also had a, I would call it a pretty strong showing. Their field was bigger. Every PAC 12 team has a, has a women's cross country team. So there were 12 schools competing in that field and they finished fourth. Uh, they were neck and neck with Colorado and just came, came one point behind. So you're a little disappointed in that. Again, you came so close to the equivalent of bronze. If this were the Olympics, it's obviously not, uh, but you still you still would have liked to have have uh, taken have finished ahead of your closest competition. Sure. But there was a uh, there was a great individual race run by Maddie Elmore, who came in fourth overall. And uh, also Izzy Thornton bought very close to the top 10, finishing 11th. You know, last time we talked uh, uh, about cross country on this podcast, the um, you know the thing that I observed was that like you know o Oregon didn't finish you know first place for the women or first place for the men, but they were like the only team that was coming in the top three, mm -hmm. you know, for both. And like you know, sort of similar here, right? You know, like Oregon doesn't get the you know the gold for either one of these, but like they're they're the only team that's like I mean, like I think looking at these standings that like. They're like this looks like the strongest like overall team. You know, they're not like concentrated for the men or concentrated for the women. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You could definitely make that argument. I think there are uh, there are some strong runners on both sides and it's not necessarily concentrated so much as some of these other programs are. That's and obviously, cool. I mean, cross country isn't exactly the same thing as track. But whenever you're running, this is still track town USA. We take pride in our cross country. Uh, yeah, no, I, well, I'm looking for that. They, they're not done either. They, they still, mm -hmm. you know, that was the PAC 12 championships. They still have uh, the NCAA West regionals coming up and then hopefully that, you know, will mean qualifying, um, uh, for, for the nationals, which would mean going back to Charlottesville, um, in, in Virginia where they already com 
competed in the pre-nationals um, uh, earlier in the year. Uh, all right. Uh, let's uh, now that we've uh, we've talked about golf, you know, hopefully that will uh, get the Emerald Valley uh, Golf Club off of our backs momentarily, our, our number one fan uh, and, and some other sports as well. Um, let's take a break. Uh, we come back. We'll talk a little Cal football. So, uh, as we have been moving through this season, we've sort of been saying goodbye to um, a lot of teams that we're that Oregon will no longer be in a conference with uh, come twenty twenty four. Um, I, I, last night I recorded a podcast with our, our old friend, Rob Wong, uh, of, uh, right for Cal, uh, formerly, uh, uh, of the California golden blogs, who was one of our sister sites, um, on the SB nation network, um, until, well, a, a whole thing happened. Um, and we're sort of like reminiscing, uh, about past stuff. Um, you've been writing a series of, uh, of articles about, uh, you know, the history of, you know, Oregon versus this team uh, and that team and, and uh, Cal's next up. Uh, what do we got to look forward to on Saturday morning when you write your article? Well, I think the big thing that may come as something of a surprise, and this is seared into my memory because part of this uh, era happened when I was actually an undergrad in Eugene, is that Early in the 2000s, Oregon actually had a Cal problem. Oh, yeah. and you, Like a bad one. A really bad one. And I can remember even as far back as I think it was 2006, I want to say, I actually got involved in some message board exchanges with folks who felt that uh, Mike Bellotti's success had really been Jeff Tedford's success. And now that Tedford was in Berkeley, that the the torch had passed. And uh, yeah, I mean, there were unreasonable fans who were like, Bellotti needs to go. We can't beat Cal, which was pretty ridiculous. Although for part of that, he had a certain offensive coordinator that listeners to this podcast will be very familiar with named Andy Ludwig. And mm. fortunately, he didn't get that continue I, that. I mean, the too the the idea that Jeff Tedford's a better offensive coordinator than Andy Ludwig is like uh, undisputable. Like, oh, absolutely. That part like, I'm not disagreeing kidding? with whatsoever. That part I, I'm not disagreeing with whatsoever. So we're going to cover that. There was, yeah, the Bears won. I'm looking at the list right now from uh, 2003. That was a memorable game. This was my freshman year. And it's memorable because Oregon was trailing in the fourth quarter and there was a malfunction in the lighting system yeah. at Autzen Stadium. The lights went out and those giant halogen lights, you can't just flip a switch and turn them back on. Yeah, they take, take a, a while, while to come back up to full brightness. So there was a second, essentially a second, slightly shorter halftime in the fourth quarter while the stadium got brighter again. And Oregon comes out and they make the comeback. It's a close win. It's 21-17. My enduring memory of that is Kellen Clemens throws to his Clemens, Kellen Clemens throws to his tight end Tim Day over the middle at one point and there's a Cal safety that comes up and says, "All right, Tim Day, you're not getting any more yards after this catch." and <laughs> runs into him at full speed and it looked like he had run into a bouncy castle. He bounced right off and tim day rumbled for another 10 yards 
that was certainly a memorable one. And the year after that, uh, the Ducks go down to Berkeley against a team that in his last season has some guy named A.A. Ron Rodgers, who I guess did did okay for himself after he graduated. And they've got a star running back by the name of J.J. Arrington with a, a freshman backup named Marshawn Lynch, who was also supposed to be pretty good. And boy, they gave him a game. That was not a great team in 2004, but they gave Cal all they could handle and, in fact, still had a chance to win it late in the fourth when they went for it on fourth down rather than try to kick a really long field goal, trailing by a uh, by a single point and the, the accurate pass was dropped. So that was mm. that was a tough one. Uh, other notable games, uh, 2007. That the Cal game was the coming out game for Chip Kelly's Oregon program. They there are a lot of folks who may still remember this one in 2009. Cal comes in ranked number six. They come into Autzen Stadium. This is the same Oregon team that had gotten really embarrassed their first game of the year in Boise against the Broncos on the blue turf. And they had won their next two games, but they really had not looked very good doing it. Uh, they had beaten Utah the week before in a game in which Jeremiah Masoli was four of 16 for a little over a uh, hundred yards or so and, uh, and an interception and the opening play of the game, maybe their best player up to that point, cornerback Walter Thurman, the third who uh, had had uh, a pick six against Purdue and a punt return touchdown against Utah. He takes the opening kickoff and he runs it back and, he gets injured and fumbles and Cal recovers. And you're thinking, well, that's it. And it was because the Ducks won 42 to three. It was an absolute whooping. That was the, uh, it was also the, the, uh, that it was that game that started the jokes. I think we kept this going with California golden blogs for a while after that, where, you know, we just mentioned Ed Dixon and they, They'd run yeah. screaming because Ed yeah. Dixon scored three touchdowns. <laughs> so a lot I mean, of memories there, and it's a close series overall. Oregon leads forty-two to forty-one. They've dominated since that. Uh, that oh streak. no, it's it's straight up tied. It's forty-two to forty-two now. Is it forty-two to forty-two? It's forty-two. This is the tiebreaker, oh, man. Oh man, I'm sorry. I'm I'm gonna have to correct that in the article. This is why we do this podcast yeah. before I post these, so I can get that fixed. Absolutely. No, I mean the thing that's interesting about the series, the the, the the thing that's really interesting about the series, like historically, is that like Cal and Oregon kind of mirror each other. Like they mm -hmm. they tend to be good at the same time, and they tend to be sort of bad at the same time. Right up until, uh, um right up until Oregon hires Mike Bellotti and, and, and Cal hires uh, Tom Holmo uh, who, and who like Mike Bellotti is a great coach. Tom Holmo is a terrible coach and like mm -hmm. Holmo just like tanks their program. Like uh, just like I, I'm from, I think he's like 97 to 2001, like those four, you know, like 97 yeah. to 2001 are four, you know, five 
pretty good years for Oregon, right? Like that's, that's Akili Smith and Joey Harrington time, you know, like that's like, those are really lost years for Cal, like including, you know, 99 for them, which is their winless season. Um, like, uh, like I think their last winless season was in like the, like, I'm not joking. It was like the 19th century, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and where they, and the other way that sort of the programs mirror each other is like where Cal digs themselves out of the hole is by kind of changing their identity. Because like, this is the other thing that like may sort of strike fans as, you know, maybe younger fans is kind of crazy about the Cal program is that like Cal's really their identity for a long time. Um, you know, through the, through the seventies, eighties and nineties was this, like they were a defensive team and like they shared all their DNA with like the rugby team. Cause like, Oh man, that's another thing that like a lot of fans may not know is like Cal for a long time was like a rugby first, you know, like their rugby team was right up there with their football team as like their most important sport on campus. I like, believe it. And, and like, if you go watch Cal games today, you like, they're all dressed in like the rugby shirts, you know, like the horizontally striped, you know, rugby shirts, like, you know, and uh, so anyway, like the, and really the thing that, you know, so they go, they hire, Tedford from Oregon, you know, and they, you know, that's what, you know, they go from like, you know, the 2001 season, you know, is, is like one in 10 for them. They hire, uh, you know, they, they hire Tedford and they immediately, you know, go seven and five, which like, I know seven and five is not a, you know, a fantastic record, but it's like a six win improvement. You know, it's like this yeah. massive spike. And then like two years later, they're up to 10 and two, you know, like it, you know, they, they really, you know, and, and, and basically as long as Tedford is there, you know, they're winning, you know, at least eight games every year until mm -hmm. basically Chip Kelly shows up and, you know, and, and basically, well, they, they fall off towards the end of it. There's a, there's a lot of, there, there start to be a bunch of problems with Jeff Tedford. Like I should actually like write a book about sort of what goes wrong with Jeff Tedford. I, I think the guy is like really fascinating. Um, you know, both his Oregon tenure and his, his Cal tenure. And then later his Fresno part one and Fresno part two tenures are, are fascinating as well. Like I actually think, you know, even though he's getting, you know, on in years, like the the way that he's matured as a head coach has been really fascinating. Like I'll just tell one little tidbit that's, that's interesting is like a, a film study guy. In fact, he, in many ways, he like really got me started in film study because I like trying to understand where Tedford went wrong at Cal was one of my first like real film evaluation projects. Um, and I, the answer that I sort of concluded with was that like, and it kind of reminded me of myself in many ways in my professional life um is that like his answer to any problem because he's like a super smart guy and he's he's like a super like offensively you know theoretical dude like like i mean that dude knows more about football theory than like he's forgotten more about football theory than i'll ever know and like his his solution to any problem that he would encounter in, in those days at cal 
was to get even more complicated, you know, like was to, like was to complexify, you know, it's like the fractally complicated. You know, it's like, oh, you know, we're we're getting hit by this. Well, here's three different solutions to that, you know, that so we'll always have an answer to it. Oh, they've answered, you know, that that fork with this. Okay, well then we'll fork that into three more things. So now there's nine different ways that we'll have an answer. So we'll always have an answer for it you know and it was like dude you're trying to push this into 19 year olds brains um and yeah and, and like you know it's it's sort of sort of the, the old coaching aphorism it's not what you know it's what you can teach you know like and, and like you know that's sort of what in, in my opinion that's sort of what went off the rails on the other hand it was like fascinating to watch as a film reviewer is just like man if you were like coding robots you know that had like no limitations on what they could process you know <laughs> like, this yeah if really this cool. guy were in charge of the ai on the on the new college football game yeah, no right. one would ever want to play the ai right i i know man and so like actually you know when i say that he's like really matured when i when i would watch him at fresno like like, like what I mean by that is that like he would devise systems that were both in that were elegant, like they had complexities within them, but they could be like understood and, and executed in a, you know, in a quick, you know, way by college students. And I was like, yeah, that, you know, you're really getting it now. Like, yeah, I really, I really dug, you know, you know, the Tedford thing. And then when he stepped down for Fresno, I really felt like, you know, they lost something there. And then it was, you know, so happy that like his health, you know, he saw health improved and that, that was the reason why he had stepped down and, and this reason why he sort of took back over at Fresno state. And like, honestly, it was, it was interesting. I, I sort of thought like, uh, uh, you know, when, when UCLA, you know, decided they needed a new coach, I was, I was pounding the table for like, they're screwing up by hiring Chip Kelly. They should be hiring Jeff Tedford. And, you know, it would be such, it would be it was such like this interesting mirror because like Chip Kelly was the guy who defeated you know, Jeff Tedford at, at Cal, you know, you know, at, at, you know, dur during the, uh, the, you know, 2008, you know, 2009, 2010 period. And now I think that, you know, Tedford's the better coach. Um, Argument could definitely be made based on some of uh, Chip's evolution, do we want to call it? Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, certainly, yeah, I mean, these, these two programs have in so, so many different ways like mirrored each other um you know they've obviously you know gone in different directions um and like look you know i'm not going to make any bones about it like they've you know that you know justin wilcox hasn't been a good coach for them and he's sort of like been you know that and they've been hanging on to the guy for way too long like you know that much is very clear um but you know what let's save that for the third segment let's uh let's take a break uh, we come back, we'll talk about the uh, upcoming game against Oregon on Saturday. So, like I said, I, I interviewed uh, Rob Wong um, potentially for the last time ever, which makes me sad. Um, the uh, you know, my article about uh, Cal football is in its current state uh, will be going up on Friday morning about the same time uh, as this podcast. Um, it's the probably the most interesting thing about the team is that they have changed quarterbacks now three different times. Um, or actually it would be more accurate to say they changed starting quarterbacks once they, 
they had one starting quarterback that they intended to start the season with Sam Jackson. And, and then, and he wasn't, he was not good. Um, but like Jackson would get hurt. And so they'd put in a guy that they would very clearly understood as his backup. And that was Ben Finley. Finley was actually better than, than Jackson was. But then as soon as like Jackson would be like healthier, they'd put Jackson back in. It was like dummies. Um, and then eventually they just got sick of that. Uh, and, and they were like, all right, let's try the fin- M- Mendoza kid. Mendoza's a two star. Um, he's, you know, smart guy. His only other offers were Yale and Penn. Uh, he's actually the son of a Miami uh, offensive lineman who played next to Mario Cristobal, of all things. Um, <laughs> who's a doctor. Uh, like I, I got some interesting information about his dad, who's also named Fernando Mendoza. Um, uh, uh, yeah, like he's a smart guy. He's really tall. Um, it's actually weird watching his throwing motion because he's like sort of deliberately constraining into a three quarters throwing motion, which is like strange to watch a tall dude do. Um, it, it, anyway, um, he's, I actually don't think he's a better fit for what Jake's Bavital, their offensive coordinator wants to do, but he's definitely, I guess I'll put it this way. The the real limiting factor for Cal's offense is that their offensive line sucks. Like oh, in it, yeah. it, like it just super duper sucks. And 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 you've been watching film on Cal too. Boy, I should have led with that. Hey, Tristan, you've been watching a lot of film on Cal. Uh, good work, dude. Uh, uh, Thanks. Um, I've actually really been enjoying reading your notes. They've been very helpful. Um, the uh um like as you know like i don't gotta tell you like that's i mean do you agree with that assessment that the single that i started off talking about the quarterback but really the constraining factor the you know the relevant real important thing is that the offensive line just blows chunks I would absolutely agree with that. The The film of Cal that I've reviewed uh, for the ongoing charting project, I've only seen Mendoza at quarterback. And yeah. he hasn't struck me as, you know, this is the guy that's going to lift this program out of the doldrums. But I would agree he's not the limiting factor here. It's just that. Oh, I think he's been pretty good. Oh, yeah. You know, no, it, it, overall. It's just like. But here's. But like what I, you know, the, what I think is going on is that like. And and frankly, they should have known like this, this really all like it's the staff's fault, like the, the staff, the staff is responsible for the offensive line. Like this is year seven, I think, mm-hmm. you know, the staff is responsible for the quarterback selection. The staff is responsible for evaluating all the pieces. The staff is responsible for watching film on them and their opponents. Like all of these things are things that they knew or should have known. Um, and should have been capable of putting all these pieces together and, and, and knowing all of this for game one, you know, not like game seven or whatever it was, or game six or, or, or you know, whatever they made this change, you know, so it's like I, whenever a coach makes, you know, eventually makes a smart, uh, the correct change, I'm always like torn. Do I give you credit for making the correct change or do I like, you know, wrap your shins for waiting till week six to make it, you know, mm. uh, sort of like both, I guess. But anyway. Here's, you know, to, 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 I'll finally spit it out. The offensive line sucks and they can't protect the quarterback at all. So what you really need is, is a quarterback who can get the ball out in like half a second. And he needs to be confident enough to do it and to not panic. 
And like that's I know you you weren't watching the Jackson tape or the Finley tape, but like I have, and like that's that's what the that's what the problem was is that like Spavadol was having these guys tr- a try to go through a progression passing system, and b who weren't like who like when they were about to get hit would be like I don't want to get hit I I I got to run I got to get out of here, um, and like like both of those are are no goes. And the thing about Mendoza is like, I mean, first of all, he's just good. Like he's just like a good, not a great quarterback, but like good. Yeah. Um, Reasonably accurate. Mobile runs the up tempo really. uh, Yeah. Very competently. Yeah. Like, you know, good qualities. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, not great. I I think there are flaws there, Um, but good. But more importantly, is that you can make him work with a lousy offensive line in that he, you know, you can sort of simplify the passing system a little bit to basically give him. I'm I'm not trying to write him off as a one read quarterback exactly, um, but basically like you can give him a system where Fernando, there's the throw. And I need you to uh, make that throw right now. Like, take the snap, make the throw, take the snap, make the throw. And also, Fernando, I know you're going to get hit. I need you to stand in the pocket and make the throw right before the, the, the hit gets to you and then get up and do that again like 40 times a game um, or whatever the, it is. Um, and not panic or, you know, or drop your eyes or start to run or do anything else. And unlike the other quarterbacks, he's been able to deliver on that. And, and therefore, you know, forget the fact that he's a good quarterback, which he is like, he's a viable quarterback, which the other guys aren't, you know, like he's able to actually complete a pass, which the other guys weren't like Jackson. I'm not kidding about this. The success rate that Jackson had as a, as a passer in that offense was 28%, like 28% of, of, of Cal's dropbacks when Jackson took the snap uh, resulted in a successful play given the down and distance. Like that's, I mean, under like under 45% is, is atrocious. Like under 28% is like, Oh, I don't even know. What are you doing? Like the, the fact that, that Wilcox didn't, I don't like, I mean, he should have been fired on the spot. Like, like the entire coaching staff should have been fired on the spot for sticking with that guy. And like for 60 passes, 60 passes, they let him go at that. Um, and they didn't realize or refuse to realize that they had a much more serviceable option. I, right. Who's in practice is for that whole, it's not like Mendoza like transferred in later. They found him in the stands or anything. Like I was talking to Rob about him over the summer. Hell, he, he, we were talking about him last year. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. this is the offense that they trotted out against Auburn early in the season and still somehow, you know, almost won that game. I mean, Auburn, 
obviously we're not doing film study on Auburn. Oregon's not going to play them this year, but that, that could be another story in itself. I mean, I, I did just want to say I, that game. <laughs> yeah. I do just want to say, I felt that was such a missed opportunity because there are rabid Cal fans. We've met them, but as an institution, Cal does not prioritize football. Whereas Auburn to the level, they prioritize football. If they had lost to a bunch of hippies in Berkeley, oh, I yeah, just no. would have sat back with my popcorn and watched them self-destruct it would have been hilarious uh yeah no that would have been great um the uh yeah and that game was just like i mean it was unwatchable like and i had to watch it yep. um, this is what i this is what i do for you listener um yeah no i was i was just an absolute disaster so anyway that's what mendoza gets you is that like he's willing to stand in the pocket and make an accurate throw um even though he's about to get hit um and, and to the correct guy like he you know now what happens if that guy is taken away well not a lot of great things um yeah. and, and now is that really on mendoza i don't know man because like the pocket never lasts that long you know mm-hmm. like i don't know what like like you know i i know a lot of people like really don't like it when you describe a quarterback as a one read quarterback and i understand why i'm not even like i don't know even know if that's true or not for mendoza because i don't know what happens if he's asked to go to his second read because i've never seen a pocket for cal last that long um like i've got a couple of clips in my and but then here's the thing i've got a couple of clips in my article in which i'm like I think actually this pocket would hold up like this is the rare time when like, you know, the, 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 the pocket looks like he's holding up and he's still just throwing it to the first read. Now, is that because, is that because he's a one read quarterback or is that because the system is just asking him to do that? Or is that because he's like, he's so psychologically scarred by <laughs> taking a hit on every single play that he's like, I gotta get rid of it. I gotta get rid of it. You know, like, I don't know. I wouldn't blame him for any of those things. You know, it's like, because as I said, it's all about how just terrible this offensive line is like, um, and it's like sort of the controlling fact um, ab- about the team. Um, a- and again, it's not like this was a surprise. It's been the worst line in the Pac-12. Well, it was saying something. Yeah, it, it, for for years, you know, and it, it well, like right now, it's like number eleven because Colorado was worse. Yeah. But like <laughs> that took some doing, you know. Like, um, so yeah. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about the passing offense is that like that there's which sort of, you know, I I put the numbers in my article, uh, I'm not going to recite them on the podcast. Um, but like we've seen Mendoza in three games. The interesting thing is here are the three games. It's Oregon state, Utah, and USC. About half of that sample is one game USC because it was a super long game. Um, like it, b- both teams had 16 meaningful possessions, like uh, it was just like bonkers. Um, and, uh, uh, so it's like, and on top of that, uh, USC's defense is terrible. And on top of that, like, not just like terrible baseline, but the USC picked their defensive strategy was, I, I literally cannot imagine a worse defensive strategy, to use against the type of passing offense that Cal was employing in this game in, in that it was cover one. It was a lot of blitzing. It was a lot of 
well, man coverage, I already said is cover one. And, uh, and the linebackers are instructed, or at least they were for most of the game to like always bite on play action. I'm going to talk about the Cal's run game in a second, but like, like always bite on play action, which meant all these in-breaking routes. That's the other thing about sort of the structure of the passing offense under Mendoza is that it's all in-breaking routes so that he always just has, you know, a dude coming over the middle, turning his numbers, you know, to Mendoza so that he can make a direct strike to him. And, oh, there's no underneath coverage and it's just a man on top of him. So, like, he's going to get tackled pretty quickly, you know, right after the catch, but he's going to make the catch for like chunk yardage and there's no underneath coverage in the way because the linebackers all get sucked up right like that's what you were seeing over and over again I, I watched the usc tape you didn't um but you watched the utah film and the osu film and like the utah and osu film you know that's there, there's on the other hand with those two teams right there's a real discrepancy sometimes the linebackers you know bite up Mm-hmm. And and Mendoza picks them apart. On the other hand, what happens when they don't? Well, he's like you said, uh, he just doesn't have enough time to get to a second read. That was especially right. apparent against Utah. I can't tell. Well, you saw my notes. It's just yeah. and the tackles are getting squeezed into the quarterback, yeah. and the tackles are getting squeezed into the quarterback. Oh, look, the tackles are getting squeezed into. The so it's like, yeah, you know. W- Oregon State and Utah, which are two teams I'm on record as saying repeatedly on this and other podcasts, like I kind of think both of those teams' defenses are a bit of an illusion, um, um, especially their secondaries. And like, um, and so it was sort of like, you know, you can pass against them, but the, the sort of controlling factor is that like, it's how the linebackers play. If the linebackers would bite on play action so that there was no underneath coverage, then Mendoza could pass against them effectively because the secondary wasn't able to stop, you know, those, those routes. And they have like four really tall receivers that he's throwing them to. So like, you know, it's not little short guys who you can hit and break up the ball. It's four big guys. And so all he's got to do is put the ball on their numbers and they can lock it down and they're going to survive the hit from the little DB, you know, um, on the other hand, if the linebackers play back and they get in the throwing lane and then Mendoza is just like, well, I can't throw that. Who else should I throw? Oop, I've taken a sack. Yep. <laughs> he's mobile enough. Sometimes he can make a little yeah. something happen with yeah, his yeah. legs, but if there's yeah. no lane, then it's just, well, here we go again. Yeah, I, there, I, he does. He does have a couple of scrambles, but you saw it, man. Like, you yeah. know, it's just this, this huge difference in effectiveness based on whether the linebackers play conservatively or they play aggressively on play action. And 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 what's sort of confusing or misleading about the numbers is that half of the sample that we have for Mendoza's time is USC and 100% of the USC or almost 100% of the USC snaps are them playing super aggressively. But then even then at the end, like the last um, it's, it's part of the fourth quarter. It's not even all of the fourth quarter, but part of the fourth quarter, the light bulb finally flickers on over Alex Grinch's head. And he's like, wait a minute. We don't have to blitz. We're getting home with even three guys. I can drop eight into coverage. And it's like you can finally see that slow coach, like, figure it out. 
and and what happens over over Cal's last three possessions, they complete two passes. Yeah, the previous the previous like the for the rest of the game, they had completed, you know, successfully for big yardage 17. And then the last three possessions when USC wises up and they quit doing the dumb, like the worst possible defensive strategy ever, like Cal completes two passes. I feel like we've had this conversation before discussing other teams or two downfield passes. There are some screens, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Screens are a little different. That's why, you know, you, you've coached me to note those differently. Yes. (laughs) But, uh, what I was going to say though, was I feel like we've had this conversation before where Oregon will encounter uh, a conference opponent whose passing game is basically, they might try to play four chords, but the only one that comes out sounding right is the one chord. You've got one chord and you're yeah. trying to make a song out of it. And for Cal, that is our line is crud. We've got great backs, though. I really like this running back room whenever they get a little bit of help. And they're trying to get your linebackers out of position and make those quick throws. And if you shut that down, there's just no plan B there. Yeah. The Okay. So the running backs are a really interesting situation. And in fact, I spent a long time in my article talking about it. Um, be, and it, the running backs are sort of what makes the passing game go in that, you know, you need to get under Mendoza anyway, you need to get the defense to bite on play action in order to make the passing game work. Well, why would they bite on play action? Well, because they're terrified of the running game. Well, should you be terrified of the running game? Well, they appear to have a couple of really good running backs, so maybe you should. And so I really dive into the numbers, and my conclusion is I don't know if you should. Um, I, I th- So here's the thing. Their their per play success rate is exactly even on the year. It's ninety nine successes and ninety nine failures. Um, here's the next thing they they've got two running backs, Jade Knott and uh, and Afonso. Um, uh, Ott they've had for a couple of years. Afonso is a transfer in. Ott's yards. Ott has like three times as many carries as Afonso here's something that like is going to sound super her- heretical because like everybody's super excited about Ott. If uh, is the better back, mm. he's the more valuable back to Cal. It's very clear when you parse the numbers, when you read my article, I will explain why I guess I'll give you a little teaser. Now, number one, he's much better in pass protection, which this offense needs pass protection. Number oh, yeah. two, um, his individual per play success rate is much higher. Um, he's at about 61%. Uh, Ott is at 49%. So like success rate is an important discriminator because it helps you deter- like, you know, a five yard gain is not e- all five yard gains are not created equal, right? Like a five yard gain on, on first and 10, you know, uh, versus a five yard gain on third and 10, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or a two-yard gain on first and 10, or a two-yard gain on third and one. Yep, makes all the difference. Right, you know, t- context matters. Yeah. And so, like, yeah. So, and, you know, so anyway, you know, Afonso, so next thing, subjectively, Afonso makes up runs. You know, like, he'll mm-hmm. he'll improvise when, the, when the, the hole's not there much better than Ott does. Ott will run into the 
Ott will just run into the offensive lineman's butts. Like, remember under Mario Cristobal when every Oregon fan just hated the run game because it was so many just like runs into the offensive lineman's butts? Yeah, well, the guess what? Butt runs. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's what Jade Knott does. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, so, so it's 99 failed runs, about 60 of them are Jaden Ott running into offensive linemen's butts on an inside zone play where it's just like, yeah, I had watched, I had to watch that 60 times. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have to watch it that often. I definitely noticed some plays where you, where you had those issues. And I mean, people, people really like Ott because he'll have some spectacular runs. Okay. But... So the spectacular runs, here's yeah. the thing. There's been five of them this year. Mm, yeah there's been they're truly enormous runs just huge just like 60 yard gonzo runs here's the thing the five of them this year they've all been by ott and so they sort of distort the and remember ott has three times as many carries as Mm -hmm. ifonse which I just I think just means that ifonse hasn't had enough spins at the wheel for his lucky number to come up Mm-hmm. And it's the reason why their yards per carry numbers are different. Right. Um, if you if you eliminate those five runs, their yards per carry numbers are identical. Or in the alternate, if I just invent a single forty yard run and stick it in Ifonse's tally, his yards per carry number goes up to the same number as Ott's does. Um, like it's just those five runs that are propping odd up. So anyway, what are those five runs? Well, three of them are against North Texas, which literally has the worst defense in FBS. And the other two are against USC. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> and it's just, and it's just like he was, you know, the hole opened up in the defense and he was just the guy who had the rock and ran it. But like, look, man, anybody could have done it. You know, g- grandma could have done it. Like he was just the guy who had the ball at that moment against a terrible defense. Like, and people get real hot and bothered about it, but it's like, this is the reason why, I don't know. This is the reason why you need to do a little more advanced box score looking uh, or than that. I really think it's illusory. And if you eliminate those five runs, it's just like everything, like Jade not becomes a very pedestrian back. Like Mm -hmm. he, he, he gets 4.4 yards to carry. It's just like, like there are there are about a dozen backs in the pack twelve. If you eliminate those five big runs, he there are a dozen backs in the pack twelve that are that look better than him. Um, like, yeah, like I, I know, I know. If you take away his best runs, he he doesn't have best you know good looking runs. But like that's the thing is like it's just it's like it it's all propped up by those runs. And his like his graph looks like a hockey stick. It's like totally flat until like five five enormous runs uh and it's like and they only come against two teams and they're the two most terrible defenses ever you know it's not like they're distributed throughout the season like yeah and i really just don't like they're you know he he produced like nothing against utah he produced nothing against uh, oregon state you know like yeah it's just like come on um 
I, I just really don't think their run game is worth panicking over. And that's what sort of, if you watch the way that Oregon state plays them, that's the other thing is that the threat of those guys bouncing outside, this is another clip. That's going to be my article. that feels like super, you know, illustrative is that like, it's much wiser for the, the, the linebackers to play back because the, the defensive line alone is perfectly capable of shutting down the interior gaps of the offensive line. And so it's and so if the running back bounces, then the linebackers are rather than sticking their nose in early, getting caught in the wash and not being able to go control the back. If he bounces, just play back and wait to see if he bounces and then go tackle him. That was a play that you tagged. Yeah, you 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 tagged that one in the Oregon State game. And it was the light bulb moment for me. Um and uh thanks i actually remember that i think it was yeah. i want to say it was number four and i go yep he's he stuck his nose in and now he can't they had yeah. five guys in the box and if number four had just hung back he could have yeah could have stretched the play and, and and contrary wise there's another oregon state play in which you have it correctly tagged as like look the 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 linebackers are playing back and uh and so when ott bounces you know, they're in a position they can go, you know, make the tackle. And so it's wiser to play back. Well, what did I just say about the passing offense? Mm-hmm. The linebackers should play back so that they can play in underneath coverage. Well, okay. Did we just discover a pretty elegant solution to shut down Cal's offense? In particular, if you're running the mint defense where that's the primary inside linebacker responsibility anyway, is oh, you're in coverage until oh, you have to sounds come like you down discovered to the something run. there, yeah. Tristan. Oh, sounds <laughs> like you're putting two and two together there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that that's been the you know the animating thing about their offense is the offensive line stinks. So don't be afraid of, of their running game. You play the linebackers back. You wait for the running backs to bounce. You play underneath coverage against all the in breaking routes, and you don't be afraid. Uh, and guess what? The mint defense is designed to do. It is a spill and kill philosophy against the run it is a kill the short you know passes you know intermediate stuff against the pass it is a don't overreact and stick your nose in it's just like i cannot think of a better defense to shut down this offense than the mint defense uh and then uh like cal on defense is oh my god what you're in for a treat reading this article um the so number one this is the fifth straight year that Cal doesn't have a nose tackle. Oh, and so yeah. they're three, four defensive structure. They just play two, four, five. And so they can't defend the run. Like I'm not going to belabor this because like anybody who's been listening to me at any point over the last five years about Cal, it's the same point. They can't stop the run. They don't have the beef in the middle. Um, like this is a spectacular failure of recruiting by Justin Wilcox and the defensive coaching staff at Cal. Like, I mean, it's fireable. Like, look, man, if I'm an outside consultant at your company, and like I write a, a performance review for an employee uh, and then the next year I, I write the same critical report about the employee that notes the same flaws that that employee has not like done anything to correct, then like that employee ought to be fired. Um, mm-hmm. If five years later I'm writing the same critical report about the same employee about with the same, you know, flaws the boss ought to be fired. Oh, but Hythe, remember, if they didn't give him that extension, he was going to take the Oregon job. I mean, Jesus. (laughs) Just like, 
it's uh, like how this team has had f- the same problem for five years and I will have written 10 consecutive articles between offseason and midseason previews of Cal in which I say the same GD thing about this team, which is they can't stop the run because they're structured as a three, four. They don't have a nose. So they put a two, four on the field. And then I'm going to put a bunch of clips in my article that demonstrate why they're structured as a three, four. And then they have a bunch of little tricks that they do to try to compensate for that, but they don't work. And you get to run efficiency runs all day long against them. And it's just like, like, how long am I going to do this? Well, I guess not anymore because they're going to be in the ACC and they're definitely not making the playoffs. Um, <laughs> so like, they're probably not making bowl games. I mean, like, okay. And assuming this is a wet game, I mean, not because it'll rain because it never rains in Autzen Stadium, but Obviously. like, you know, but like through Cal tier tears on the ball. And so maybe this is a game in which there's a lot of running like, yeah, I mean, Oregon might just want to just run the ball like for the entire game. Um, and there's nothing that you know, Cal's not going to be able to stop. it. They may not run for like giant you know, like chunk yardage because the Cal just structurally is pretty good at stopping that. Like that it's the one thing they're good at is, is preventing like explosive rushing, but like who cares? The whole point of this would be to take the air out of the ball, you know, and like <clears throat> get the game over, you know, quickly. Um, so, you know, whatever run for like six yards a run, every run, like just, yeah, I wouldn't mind that at all. Um, so anyway, the funny thing is the pass. So like, uh, that their, their pass defense is kind of funny that they're, when you run the regression numbers on them, it's, it's really quite weird. Um, they're, they're the most upside down team in the universe. Um, most pass defenses. Okay. Because of the way the Cal's defense is structured, they love it. When you try to play conservative uh passing game they love it when you try to throw short because they love playing zone and sort of keeping the play in front of them and and then just kind of making the tackle so they are fantastic on third and short against the pass and third and long against the pass Mm -hmm. um because what happens on third and short when offenses pass i mean on third and short when they run you can run all over them but i'm talking about pass defense third and short when you pass and third and long when you pass you're passing to the sticks right you're not getting aggressive on third and short or third and long when you're passing you're passing to the sticks well cal loves it when you pass to the sticks because it means they get to play zone and they know exactly where the ball is going and they don't bite on your little tricks you know to try to run them off uh, to run deep, you know, they'll just camp out underneath and then they'll tackle you and then they get off the field. They love it. So, yeah, so that's interesting. The shorter you throw it and normally what is a, a, a low risk, you know, high percentage throw, actually, those are your worst options against Cal. However, because Justin Wilcox recruits terribly, like it's nothing yeah. but like, low three stars and then even though he was bringing back everybody from his secondary last year like he went out he was like he sort of realized that oh my god these guys are terrible um and so he goes out and get a bunch of portal guys well he's not getting good portal guys he gets a bunch of like g5 dudes and like bottom of the barrel 
you know, power five dudes who are like the same talent level um, or worse. Like, and guess what? They're all awful too. Um, Like there's just no talent, you know, and, but they're sort of like, I mean, Justin Wilcox is sort of like a, he's, I mean, he's a good coach. Like, or is he good? I don't know. He's a good, like tactical level coach. He's just like a terrible manager. Like he's a bad strategist. He doesn't like understand why his team keeps losing games. He just sort of like, I don't know, he's like Jeff Tedford, sort of, in, in a way. I don't know. If I were smarter, I could make this comparison in an elegant, like, Faulknerian way, but I'm sorry. Uh, and it's getting kind of late. Um, yeah. a- a- anyway, like, uh, he can't figure out why he's losing games. He just keeps making the mistakes that, that leads him to lose games. But he can coach up a dude to do what he wants. The problem mm-hmm. is sort of what he wants is uh, will lead him will to to paint himself into a corner but he can get you to do what he wants um so what he wants is to play zone and take away sort of short throws but the guys he gets have like no foot speed at all and so like here's a fun stat that I, I I got from the regression Cal in during meaningful play in FBS games has, has given up a, like a sum total of about a little over 2,400 yards. Half of that, a little over 1200 yards come on 10% of their plays. T- 10, like one out of 10 plays are 50% because they give up enormous plays like bonkers, enormous plays. So when things go wrong, it's like, it's like nine out of 10 plays. Oh yes. Things are proceeding precisely according to plan. <laughs> one out of 10 plays. Oh my God. You know, it's like, Oh you know, no, the proton torpedoes got into the exhaust tube. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the streams get crossed, you know, like it's, it's real bad. And uh, like, I mean, just crazy. They're, they're one of the worst teams in the nation for giving up 50. They're one of the worst teams in the nation for giving up 50 yard, 40 yard, 30 yard and 20 yard plays. That's the other like stats that I like. They are good for giving up one 50 yard play every game. So what you're saying, Hythe, is that whether allowing Oregon fans may finally get to see some of the deep shots they keep clamoring Oregon for this offense. Gets plenty of deep shots. I don't know where that I myth know, comes from. Anyway, the uh but like there I mean, some of them against Cal are on deep shots. And in fact, second and short, second and short's the deep shot down, right? Oh yeah. Always. You know why I asked this to Adam Holland on a previous podcast and he whiffed. I was real disappointed. I almost fired him on the spot. Uh, uh, Tristan, why is the second and short the deep shot down? Because if you miss the deep shot, it's a low percentage play. Now it's third and short and that's very makeable. Oh, thank you. You, you, you don't get fired. You get a job for another day, Tristan. Good. Uh, Yay. uh yeah, exactly. Well, uh, so Cal has a very high success rate on third against the pass on third and short and on third and long. Cause that's the situation they love to be in. I'm not kidding. It's like an 80% defensive success rate. Oh, you know yeah. what Cal's defensive success rate is on third on second and short. You want to guess? I'm going to say it's under 40%. It's 12.5%. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's the deep shot down. Yeah. So you get that uh, nine yard run on first down, take it. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. You 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 held for forget nine yard run, you seven yard run, you get a seven yard run on first down. Oh yeah, you take a deep shot because they're dudes. And so this is the thing that's like totally I'll I'll finish the metaphor. So while so 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 the they love it when you do short high percentage low risk throws those are actually the worst thing you can do against cal but the best thing you can do against cal are the high risk low percentage throws because their lead foot secondary dudes can't cover them if you ask that dude to run 40 yards downfield to cover a deep shot or you hit a drag route over the middle and ask him to try to keep up with him it ain't gonna happen the longer your dude runs the more separation there's gonna be in fact i made a whole separate video at the end of my article I didn't even bother narrating it. <laughs> I just threw it in for kicks um, where it's like the, the hilarious thing is like you hit a pass. If you hit a pass with some degree of separation between you and the secondary member, the separation doesn't close. Like it, it's not like you're running and the secondary member eventually catches up to you. And so the play, you know, and like, oh, man, you hit a 20 yard pass against us. And so it ends after 26 yards. It's like you hit a 20 yard pass against Cal and then like the gap grows to eight yards and then 10 yards and then 12 yards. And then you run for an 80 yard touchdown because nobody can catch you on that team. Um, and I just put like, I mean, I put four of them in my article cause I'm, cause the video host won't let me put in more than like limits me to one minute, but like, oh my God, I had so many of them. I mean, here's a fun one. North Texas had two different 59 yard passes. I had to pick which 59 yard pass to put in. Oh, uh, that is fun. How'd you decide? Did you flip a coin? Uh, it was the one that I, I didn't have any clip that showed uh, uh, number six, Irby, uh, uh, getting beat. So I, I picked uh, th that one because it showed number six, Irby, getting beat. Good choice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had to choose between 1,500-yard passes. And it's like it's in every game. There isn't a single game in which they, like, or... or Oregon State only had a 38-yard pass. They, they were the they were the team that has the least long play against them, and it was 38 yards only because they threw it from the 38-yard line. Yeah. Like if they threw it from their own, you know, 20-yard line, it would have been 80 yards. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oregon just, State's receivers are. Not the uh, not the tallest or grandest physical specimens, but they I do remember quick. them leaving Cal's receivers in the uh, Cal's defenders yeah. in the dust. Yeah, you saw that one. In fact, you flagged it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's the thing. Um, now, on the other hand, if the ball is wet with Cal tears, like I don't know if you're going to see those, but it's not restricted to passing plays. I 
I put at least one. I could have put in a couple more because USC had a few of them that are runs. Or, well, one that was a giant run and one that was actually his little scramble and then a dump off. And then two different Cal Bears missed the tackle. And the dude winds up running for 72 yards. Like mm-hmm. So it's technically not... It's technically not a run. It is technically a passing play, but like almost all of it is on foot. Um, You know, it's not like through the air. Uh, So like, even if this is a a mostly run and short pass game due to, uh, uh, again, Cal Bear tears all over the ball, um, like you still might see you know, giant plays, uh, uh, for, for that reason. Cause Hey, you know, secondary got to tackle, um, and secondary got to take re- correct angles and secondary got to catch up to dudes and like not shown a good ability to do that. They have to like, they have to stay in, in front of the play and keep it in front of them. If they let the play get behind them, it will stay behind. Them. <laughs> like they're not <laughs> catching up, which is yeah. Why they're, they don't have a winning record. Okay. Uh, let, let's wrap it up there. Right, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, Tristan, you got any uh, parting words of wisdom for us? Uh, the only parting words of wisdom I have is the only score Oregon fans should be afraid of this weekend in the football game is if Oregon goes up exactly 30 to nothing because I'm old enough to remember 1993. Ooh, that's a bad ooh. score. Anything ooh. else is fine. 29 to nothing is fine. 31 to nothing is fine. Don't if they have to miss an extra point to prevent going up 30 to nothing, they need to miss the extra point. Hmm. I see. Uh, all right. Well, uh, there, there may be bare tears all over the ball, uh, but it never rains on this podcast. <laughs>